Hello, and welcome to Unfrozen. I'm Dan Safarek. And I'm Greg Lindsay, and welcome to another Biennale di Venezia episode. We're back. Uh, some time has elapsed, but we still have piles of recordings and piles of thoughts to get through. And so we're very happy to be back in the queue with a new episode. Uh, this time, sort of segueing, as I think I teased in our initial one, segueing with the long-promised Metaverse Metropolis series we're going to do here, related to my Cornell Tech project that's wrapping up also right now. Um, but yeah, while we were at the Biennale, uh, despite the title of the Laboratory of the Future, it was interesting how little, let's just say, technology there was, which is obviously refreshing in some respects. But there were two, two pavilions or two uh, uh, participants that really stood out uh, relating to the metaverse, the use of digital simulation tools or using you know, augmented reality to understand architecture. And so we're very happy to have uh, two interviews here. We're going to segue them in here uh, at various stages because of timing with various participants. So, um, so yeah, the two in particular were the Albanian Pavilion, Untimely Meditations, which actually used a, a sort of VR environment, um, not in real time per se, but actually sort of using those tools to both model out the National Stadium of Tirana, which I guess I understand is not particularly in use, and the artificial lake in Tirana, which is dealing with its own sort of, uh, you know, long-term preservation issues, but using tools to sort of combine them to, to basically sort of explore potential futures. And then our second interview in the podcast, which we're combining together, is with uh, Chin Wabani, who is a Nigerian-born, uh, uh, I mean, what, Com- computer expert? I forget exactly what he's doing consulting. He's not an architect, but he is actually using augmented reality to digitally repatriate stolen artifacts out of the British Museum and elsewhere. And so we'll come back to him in a moment. But, but first, let's, let's, uh, Dan, let's start with the Untimely Meditations. Uh, this is really interesting when the Albanian Pavilion in the context of it is, you know, is obviously in sort of the, the leg through the Arsenale. So you enter into this room, which, which the curators will explain. Um, I, was, I should note here that we're very happy to have the, uh, the co-curators, uh, which is the firm Heramate. It's uh, Era Mercuri and Martin Joleka. Um, Heramate is basically the sort of combination of the two. But as they explain, you sort of walk into this room where it's covered in gravel, multiple screens in darkness. It's sort of like you're at this sort of like, you know, it's like attending a picnic in a edge of a gravel lot. And then you sort of dive into sort of these wall screen installations. Um, so I don't know, Dale, without further ado, let's, let's cue it up and hear it in their own words here as they walk through uh, their approach to imagining co-creating features together. Curators of the Albanian Pavilion, the firm Heramate, which is composed of Era Mercuri and Martin Joleka. Uh, and they used VR to sort of imagine or invite the public and the attendees into imagine the future of Tirana's national stadium and man-made lake, if I understand it. So uh, Era and Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. No, it's a pleasure. And one of, obviously one of my favorite pavilions at the Biennale, one where my jaw dropped open to see a darkened room full of screens and virtual representations. I guess, uh, obviously, as a starting place, could you describe the, the subjects of untimely meditations and, again, how you arrived at VR is really the best tool to render it and how that fits into your larger narrative? Okay, yeah, untimely meditation or how we learn to live in synthesized realities, the contribution of the Albanian um, pavilion this year. Uh, it's a digital story actually about two civic, the, that takes place in two civic spaces in Tirana, very important for the city. And along the way, uh, it develops in the Odyssey that is filled with um, global and universal issues like technology and um, 
and ecology, uh, and ecology and the transformation that is happening uh, in these two um, in, the, in these two realms, so to say. And um, yeah, that's yes. So uh, we start with these two spaces, two civic spaces in Tirana, actually, but uh, we focus more. Um, mostly in developing a strategy on how to um, how to see in another way um, coming together, um, being together, and also involving, uh, as Martin said, the um, transformative uh, period we're living in. Uh, for us, uh, throughout all the journey, it was impossible not to have into our backgrounds the um, the rapid changes that are happening, considering the technology and the rapid changes in uh, ecological transformation. And uh, I guess um, for all the newer, the younger generation, these topics, these themes are constantly uh, constantly resting with us. So it's kind of impossible to, to avoid them anymore. And what we... Uh, what we see in this uh, idea is that how um, we see that we are not mentally and spiritually ready to embrace all these changes, uh, and it's uh, also it's an it's an experiment also for us as architects, also for us as uh, as people as humans, uh, how to how to embrace these changes and how to be how to let go and be part of it. Um, so but it's also in a critical way, not just yeah. uh, not just go along, but critically engage with these uh, issues and with these uh, technologies, and not just avoid it. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to take a, a step back for a second, for those who are, of our listeners who are unable to see it, again, this is where a podcast, such a visual medium. But could you describe the components of the pavilion itself? So as 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 one enters the Albanian pavilion, what do you see or what is the mood or what are you trying to evoke? Because there's multiple screens, multiple surfaces, seating. How does it all fit together? Yeah. Okay. So um, the pavilion is a mixture of uh, physical and digital medium uh, so as to bring everything in balance and also, most importantly, to create a, a med- meditative mood, so as to say. Uh, so you enter, uh, we have a space in, uh, in Arsenale. Uh, after, um, after going through all the participants, who this year are very interesting as well, uh, you reach uh, our space, our pavilion, and immediately you enter in a dark ambience um with uh, very few spotlights um and uh, one of the most important elements that we used was the gravel we covered the floor in gravel and we placed also some small um a few landscape elements um so as to bring the balance uh, between all the digital content that we're showing there are uh, two uh, large screen facing each other uh, who, which show um, the the animated movie that we produced, and on the other end, on the perimeter wall, there is um, a large uh, projection of um, of the the same model that we used to to make the film. Uh, we converted it uh, into an interactive model uh, using um, gaming. Um, 
software. software. And uh, which brings another perspective. Um, and on the other hand, there is uh, uh, in front of the video projection of the game, of the interactive model, uh, there is a very ambiguous space, which was the niche uh, that uh, on the one side is kind of like a black mirror um, fragmenting all the all the uh, all, all the ref- yeah all the reflections all the situations happening in the pavilion and on the other side there is a section of the stadium uh, which also brings another layer of um, another perspective way of showing so we've mixed well, we've mixed um, all the media that we use as architects to produce uh, to produce a project but we've used them in a way as to, to tell a story, to tell this digital story. In a way, the media that we've used uh, also shows kind of the uh, chronological tra- tra- um, transformation of the computer, uh, first as a, as a machine, uh, then as a, storytelling then as a means for design as a storytelling medium and in the end with the interactive model with the the video game it becomes even always more Mm. more immersive experience and in the way this is it uh it's not a linear reading we've uh, we've tried to play a little bit with the space so that wherever the visitor comes they can read the space as they want. It's not, um, you don't have to follow uh, a line. Um, and what can you add to well, it? I'm curious, I mean, what, what were the aims of, of the technology of using the VR? I, you know, in the rush of the preview, I didn't have a chance to understand the full mechanics of it, but it seemed like, you know, with the, the fact that you were using it as almost as a, as a proving grounds, as a scenario generator, as a well, way of welcoming people in to imagine alternate futures. And I'm, I'm sort of curious, is this sort of like trying to democratize the design process or, or make it more accessible to others to sort of to really play test future designs? And I'm sort of, yeah, curious about like how you saw the, the possibilities of the tool of rendering it into a game environment and then inviting people to play, quote unquote, or what, what were sort of the, your hopes of it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think um, on the other hand, we appreciate the power of these tools and they are very powerful in many ways. Uh, also, the gaming win- industry uh, as it's, is, is, is seen as a niche or as something not so good, but actually has a lot of knowledge and has a lot of um, potential to influence and to inform uh, other, other realms. Um, and in this sense, we architects uh, have been using these tools, of course, but in a way that is in most of the cases is not uh, very very holistic or the very or very um very good for for the society as a whole and uh, on the other hand uh, we as architects are being or our role is being more and more how to say it more and more undermined by many factors and uh, Rightly so, one could say, but in the same time, um, um, we also have have the have the um, the need to to find freedom, to mm-hmm. find a way how to how to express ourselves. Not only architect, but uh, every 
uh, every human being has a need to to express themselves in one way or another and um so to say we combine these two uh, yeah these two how to say these two things and uh, try to tell the fiction or speculation a digital story about these two places which right now are being also undermined the one that is not being the stadium is not being uh, used at all and the artificial lake or the park around it is is being very uh, overused and um, yeah, t- yeah combine that and uh, so, so, so to, say, to to generate to to tell this story and to generate discussion and to provoke in a sense uh, uh, more discussion and to provoke also uh, yeah to provoke the to provoke people that to to engage with these uh, issues in a joyful and uh, curious way yes so being in a speculative time with these two places that are very hybrid uh in in a way the using speculative tools uh, was the the right way to go so i've noticed a lot of efforts similar efforts uh less poetic than yours but similar efforts to try to engage publics through simulation whether it's vr or ar i've seen some various ar ones too of you know um, there's an app called in situ which basically sort of projects the future building sites and invites the public to to interact but it's always this sort of notion that the public will engage in useful discourse. Um, you, you know, is there a process for reimagining the stadium and rethinking the uses of the lake? Is this going to be part of that official process? Are you inviting people to submit commentary or submit their uses of it? I, I'm curious, how does this flow back out of the Biennale into the processes to reimagine? Or how do you imagine the profession uh, as architects being transformed of having this public input or public suggestions that play into pot- potential roles? Because I do know, and we've discussed this before, the many architects are uh, are scared, are scared that they will no longer have agency because of all these possible futures or, you know, this further cacophony of voices that undermine their ability to imagine a singular future for a site. Um, so, how, yeah, how do you imagine, you know, I, and I also love the double use of undermine. Like, I think the, the exhibit pointed out that, like, literally, like, think the stadium and there's some structural issues and ground issues with the lake and the stadium. So they are being literally undermined. But, um, but yeah, how do you imagine architects harnessing these tools? Because that is, of course, the larger, these synthesized realities. How do we live in them and how do we tell stories in them together? Lots of questions, mm-hmm. I know, but I'm curious this deeper. Where does this go after the Biennale? Yeah, I'll say one thing uh, in regard to your question. Uh, we also, uh, so to say, provoked ourselves and uh, tell ourselves that uh, in telling this story, uh, as a, let's tell this story not about architecture or the object, architecture as an object, but more uh, architecture as part of this life, so to say, and uh, human existence. And uh, in that sense, we undermine ourselves or the role of the architect and try to to think the role of architect or the architect as an agent, uh, a new, and what can it be? And for us, it can be many things mm-hmm. because uh, as long as people are informed and uh, have the courage and curiosity, then can they can influence the world in many ways, not just uh, by building. Um, and also, in a way, things are being very um, interdisciplinary. So 
in a way, we also want to experiment with other fields so as to have more knowledge because we will eventually um, work with sciences. We work already with ITs. We work with many other fields. So uh, we try in a way to become a bit more general, generalistic universal people so as uh, to bring back this uh, holistic but using uh, the com contemporary tools so um, for for us all this also the AI or everything that's happening they're just tools that we can use it's not that I mean of course some people might lose their jobs it's uh, part of the process but you always have to remember that this is a tool that we can use um, yeah and uh, we have to transform with uh, with everything else it's yeah. uh, i mean uh, adaptation and appropriation are part of human existence um, and uh, also Regarding to your question about the participation of uh, mm -hmm. people, um, of course, we very much would like to, to start a discussion with with the citizens of Tirana. I don't know how at what scale it will uh, evolve. evolve. <laughs> um, but it doesn't have to be necessary that... Uh, each citizen should have his or her own uh, opinion uh, on the um, on the space or or for the space. Um, more than that, it's it's sometimes uh, or in the modernity architects design buildings and uh, over design them so that uh, few people can relate to mm. and the. We find the most beautiful spaces are the spaces that uh, are transformed and evolved during the years and maybe sometimes informally uh, so that many, many more people can relate to them and many more people have stories about them. And uh, right now we find it very interesting to use these tools like uh, VR, rendering engine, gaming uh, uh, softwares to to simulate this kind of scenarios to speculate about possible futures and uh, also for us to to bring on board different uh, people different uh, different uh, disciplines as era said and and to develop scenarios like in the movie that we made uh, so you have an artificial forest which is being uh, planted by biologists and synthetic biology Uh, and you have the the growing uh, system for the grass, and so make a story that uh, uh, brings back, takes you to 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 other places and uh, makes you to to read more and to mm -hmm. to understand more uh, than just uh, how to build a building, mm -hmm. let's say. And also what I found interesting is that uh, different visitors read it, uh, read the pavilion very differently, of course, uh, because for the ones that are not coming from Tirana, uh, from Albania, 
of course it's hard to notice what is real what is not real in the in the movies what's there what's existing what we added and why is that important and the contextual things of course uh, it's a bit hard diff um, difficult for those visitors but also um, i noticed uh, when we had the preview when we had the opening a lot of people a lot of uh, visitors from coming from tirana they uh, didn't know or had never seen some of the some of the areas that we modeled they had never seen them in this in that perspective and they got more curious to 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 play with it and to explore so it's also about exploration and also i also noticed some other visitors that uh they didn't even didn't even know what we what we designed or what we what we proposed and what was already there and this blurring of artificiality of um of uh, the fiction and uh reality was also part of our um, crucial part of our process of thinking to 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 blur these lines even more as to say that um it doesn't really matter <laughs> you know as long as it is uh, as long uh, as it is inspiring, inspiring as you said yeah. yeah so well speaking speaking of inspiration um i wanted to ask about the title of the exhibition untimely meditations this is one of the english translations of the typically untranslatable <laughs> german title uh of the friedrich nietzsche book which contains essays on artists and uh, uh thinkers most notably the composers Strauss and Wagner uh, and Schopenhauer, um, as well as others. Um, apparently a kind of a problematic book as most of his were um, for him and for all the readers. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how you came to this title. Well, we, so we, we read Nietzsche's work very, very, uh, how to say? With pleasure. With pleasure <laughs> and with criticism, right? Uh, we totally agree that his writing is difficult, uh, at times problematic, but most of the time very inspiring and very, very precise. And thought-provoking. Thought-provoking, yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing we generally like about Nietzsche is that the way he does philosophy is not uh, the, the dogmatic way, the classical way, but it's very broken and it's more like literally, uh, liter uh, literary. Literary. And uh, that gives that lets uh, the reader it has space for space for for thinking for um, for freedom, and um, on the other hand, Nietzsche has always uh, uh, deal has always dealt with uh, time and the cycles of time and what does it mean and. Uh, also, that that leads us to what does it mean to be contemporary, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and most importantly, this uh, fragmented way of thinking, the freedom or the um, not complying complying to to regulations, to norms, this kind of freedom and uh, the poesis of it also uh, inspired us to to. To, to, to have this series of reflections. So, um, yeah, the work, it's not... Uh, everybody can interpret it differently. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not really saying only one thing. There are a lot of layers and a lot of 
reflections, meditations. It's a bit uh, fragmented in a way. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the thing was, um, so we globally we found ourselves at the point right now that we are dealing with a lot of, or we feel as people we are dealing with a lot of um, uh, transformation, and we are in a bit of a panic. Um, and that is actually nothing new. Uh, it's totally not nothing. Yeah. It's not new. We just feel that way. Um, and Nietzsche's approach has always been in our eyes to deal with these uh, issues in a more playful way and to engage with them, uh, not not to be scared of them and maybe to transform with them and, um, and be a bit disruptive, disruptive uh, in a way. Yeah, 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 yeah. And let's see where that that takes you: the mm-hmm. writing, or the the film, or the architecture, or the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and out of this disruption, all something new always comes up, and something uh, that that is mm-hmm. actually the that was the idea behind it. So. As we very very much appreciate the the title from Leslie Loco, the Laboratory of the Future. But in the same time, our answer was untimely mm, uh, yeah. laboratory, so to yeah. say, because the future. What does the future mean? Yeah. Well, well, that raises the question I would ask too. You know, pre- previously, a uh, previous episode in our, in our Metaverse Metropolis series here on Unfrozen, with only two episodes so far, but we had the German firm Numina that is sort of using virtual environments to render potential real future cities, and so. I guess as a last question, I'm curious your thoughts on yeah where this goes. I mean that that subtitle really evocative. How do we live in synthesized realities? I mean, I, I'm curious where you think this goes from here in terms of yeah you know do we do we synthesize entirely new worlds as well and use pieces or or play tested versions of that to flow back into real world projects? We also of course have AI as I mentioned you know at the outset of this which I which plays into the Latvian pavilion. We'll have that in a future episode. But they were using generative AI at one point. We know that Zaha Adid, Zaha Adid Architects under Patrick Schumacher is apparently using AI to render projects. I'm curious your thoughts on that combination of virtual environments and perhaps generative AI together about how how do we live in synthesized realities or how do we even yeah start to imagine or pick from as architects as as curators in a way of you know, which aspects of these synthesized realities that we want to render into the built world? Because we're about to, it seems like we're about to enter across a new threshold of incredibly inexpensive or easy generation of images, what Photoshop is doing, what others are doing. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm curious where this points towards in terms of like that, that synthesized realities aspect about how do we navigate our way in that, in that mm-hmm. future, that untimely future. Actually, right now we can point in, anywhere <laughs> Uh, and as Era said, we're as a society, as a global society, we're not prepared at all for this uh, revolution. Um, but in a way, uh, as we've already uh, also discussed, <laughs> always, um, all this is is an amplifier. It amplifies everything that we might already know or that we all might already feel. The, all the new technologies and of course there will be as you said will be more of um, curating uh, in a way that picking what's what's good what's bad how to work with the tools but um, 
it will also ele elevate a little bit the the discussion and will not start will not have to start from from scratch but we can have a base and then work some more and I, I don't know what's going to produce it. Yeah, I think the critical point is that that we have to engage with these tools yeah. uh, in order uh, for them to be just tools and not them to control us, so to say. Yeah. If we stay passive, then we have a problem because these tools are very powerful and they can control one. Uh, if we engage with them and then master them, so to say, then they can still be just yeah. tools and, and very yeah very useful tools yeah. and they can boost our imagination even further and not let it uh, i mean if somebody is scared that uh, the ai generator of images will take their job then you're not doing something right you have to uh, to use it and uh, elevate uh, the discussion even even further i guess <laughs> because yeah uh, in the old days, we didn't yeah. have the wheel, and then we <laughs> discovered the wheel, and jobs got lost. So <laughs> I don't know. It's a bit. Yeah. Uh... Yeah. No. Fascinating uh, ramifications for practices. Obviously, that too. But but yeah, I, I am I am curious with the notion of sort of like what happens of um, you know obviously various technologies make it very low render very things low cost. This idea of rendering reality itself low cost or potential realities low cost, I think, is a fascinating one. And again, congratulations on really being the only pavilion to grapple with that, I think, at this year. Of, of all these technological possibilities that are facing the field and facing cities, uh, it was re really refreshing to find yours actually sort of dealing with like what, what happens with virtual environments. So Actually, for us, it was also a bit of a surprise that mm -hmm. uh, not so many national pavilions weren't dealing with, with the digital transformation yeah. and uh, the virtual simulation, so to say. But yeah. I was going to say, what is it right? Is it a right time for that one? Well, obviously, we'll hear from uh, from uh, uh, Chi Noah Bani in a moment about Ludi and sort of imagining futures there, but also obviously the silver line that went to Ola Lake and Jafis for his imagined Afrofuturism. Like, there is a particular right moment about using these technologies to get away from, you know, future trends extended into imagining those adjacent possible. So you are definitely part of that trend as well. So yeah. Well, on that note, I want to wrap it up here. It was a pleasure having you, Martin. Thank you so much, Era, and congratulations again on your pavilion, Untimely Meditations. Thanks so much for joining Thanks us. Thank you so much. So the Albanians gave us Untimely Meditations. Uh, what did you think of that title and what did you think of the interpretation? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, the, obviously we talked about the Nietzsche reference there, which I'm still shocked that I missed. But, I, you know, my, my biggest takeaway from it is just sort of like how obvious in retrospect it should be that there should be more VR in the Biennale. I mean, I, what's always struck me is very interesting about virtual representation and, and the, you know, when it comes to architects in the metaverse is that this is an actual technology that architects are very familiar with, right? Like tons of fly-throughs tons of digital simulation environments. It should be something the profession's on the leading edge of. And I particularly think of it in the context of the 2020-21, the pandemic Biennale, How Will We Live Together, where you had entire pavilions, like I remember the Germans just put up a QR code, just like completely mailed it in, right? Like where, where is that sort of level of simulation? Like why are we not actually, and particularly when it comes to global reach, like this should be re required that you do more than a website, frankly, but there should be I don't know, some sort of like virtual participation that, that extends to that. And no one's really ever explored that. Albania is probably the closest we've come to having something that has a shelf life beyond walking through a pavilion in Venice. So 
Maybe one of these years. We'll see. Maybe next time around we're there in 25. Indeed. I mean, you know, it makes me think of, you know, I think of all the consumer products that are kind of like out ahead of this. And, and it seems like architects are sort of behind it in a weird way. Like, you know, you've got all these immersive experiences that are t- taking up all the storefronts in uh, empty stores, you know, in on America's main streets like Van Gogh. And, uh, you know, it's like, okay, so that was a 2D experience that's now a 3D experience, but architecture is supposed to be a 3D experience and you're supposed to be able to understand space in three dimensions. Why not have some kind of pop-up exhibition that uses VR to kind of familiarize people with why architecture is important and the consequences of good and bad decisions? I know. Well, there you go. Well, well Dan, I challenge you to go to like the, you know, the Mies estate and basically do their version of like Frida Kahlo and Van Gogh. So when they, like, now, now we should like riff on that for a bit. Imagine walking into a giant big box store and like, you know, be introduced to Frank Lloyd Wright, the experience. Um, my mother <laughs> would go to that in about 10 seconds. She would shell out 50 bucks for a Frank Lloyd Wright VR experience. Absolutely. I mean, you know, people have an appreciation for 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 mass consumption of 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 mainstream art. Why why not mass consumption of mainstream architecture? Well, there you go. Well, well speaking of consumption of mainstream art, that brings us to our second interview for this episode uh, with Chino Wabani. So, yeah, walking through the Arsenale as well as part of the sort of special uh, a section of like sort of special selections by the curator Leslie Locko. Um, Ludi is this fascinating collective that I had not heard of, uh, despite this being my nominal area of expertise, but. Uh, yeah, as you'll hear from Chidi, basically what he's done is, is you know, uh, exploited two interesting bylaws so far in the British Museum, uh, which he'll explain. One of which is that you can enter MAST, a legacy of the pandemic. And the other is that you can, you, you can create non-commercial 3D scans of the artifacts there. And what's really interesting about this, this is sort of AR versus VR, is that anybody who has an iPhone 13 or 14 has an extremely powerful LiDAR scanner in their phone. Um, stuff that you know would have cost thousands of dollars a decade ago is now just basically bundled as part of the feature. And so Chidi was the one who realized you could basically go in and very simply start scanning objects. And that underscores exactly what he's doing with Ludi, which is to basically create digital representations of artifacts in the British Museum uh, that were taken, some would say, of course, stolen from African communities, uh, which, of course, dovetails nicely with Leslie Locko's theme this year. And so, yeah, and so Chidi is exploring combinations of you know, augmented reality representation of artifacts in the Biennale, looking at how these artifacts play a role in placemaking and community and culture, and how we can use these digital representations, rendered as NFTs, there's even a Web3 tie-in, as a way to basically uh, benefit communities as well. So with that, let's toss it over uh, to Chidi and, uh, and hear from him about how Ludi got started. Chidi Wubani, I'm a digital product designer um, and the, the founder of Luti. Um, Luti is an arts collective who basically deal in countering the hypocrisy of, you know, the modern world and the status quo. Um, that started with what we call the digital heist. And it's taken this concept of, can you steal something that has already been stolen? Right, and that run lines through, um, you know, through law and the whole like uh, 
legal uh, practice of like copyrights. It runs through the political kind of aspect of you know the the stealing and taking of artifacts from other people's lands. Then it also runs through like the cultural um, the cultural perspective. I'm, I'm Nigerian, so the the first um, the first artifact that we went. To the British Museum to take were the Benin bronzes, and it actually runs through that whole aspect of who gets to hold culture, your culture, who gets to actually tell the story of your, your culture. Um, and with with that, we're just kind of thinking about what new perspectives can we bring. We always want to question. Well, I mean, the with Luke, we want to question everything, but. Um, the conversation about do we have to hold our memories and our history within the institution of a museum? You know, sometimes some things, I believe they become um, almost, I don't want to say the word like insignificant, but maybe they become almost like natural in a way, like natural in the sense of like, you don't question, you don't question the museum. It's always been there it will always be there and you're just like yeah this is how history is is stored history is, is the story of history is told within this structure of a museum but then it's like that's not necessarily true because the museum has not been around forever and especially when you look at it from the, from the point of view of um of, of someone who's who's african the museum does not exist that is not the way that we used to to hold our history, to tell our history. There are other forms of, of, of displaying history. And now with the digital, we've seen this opportunity to use the digital as a new form of displaying our history, but using reference from you know, our ancestors, from our culture. Um, Can you talk quickly about the tech stack you used to do? Because it's a very novel combination. I mean, I think most people don't know that their iPhones, I don't know, at least 13s and 14s have really powerful LiDAR cameras that you use, and then you reconstruct it, and then there's an NFT Web3 aspect too. So could you quickly walk through like how, yeah, how Ludi works in terms of a tech perspective? Yeah, so, yeah, to I mean, to to put it simply, most, not most phones, but there's there's LiDAR technology inbuilt in most of the like pro versions of like the iPhone and the iPad. Um, And using that, those, that LiDAR technology, that was also another legal loophole that we managed to get around um, with the British Museum because in their terms and conditions, you're actually allowed to take 3D scans. So we would take those 3D scans. And then with those, we would turn those into digital assets, which we would then tokenize and um, turn into NFTs. And then those same NFTs, we would then turn them into AR assets, which then live physically within a space, a physical and a digital space, right? So we've done that on um, with the Benin Bronzes and then also with the Rosetta Stone. Yeah, tell me about the Rosetta Stone project. The New Yorker profile, your, your actual heist of that one too, but there's an urban aspect because you were actually sort of repatriating it to Alexandria then. And what, what was the idea behind the, the selection you chose and, and who owns the, the Rosetta Stone or at least its digital incarnation? Yeah, so the, the Rosetta Stone actually um, worked with um, a archaeologist and professor from Egypt. Her name is Monica Hanna and um, she's doing some amazing work. Um, and I if anyone has the the chance, go to um, or search um, return Rashid or repatriate Rashid, which is the project that we're working on. Um, so actually, the Rosetta Stone is not called the Rosetta Stone; 
um, that's like the let's let's say the colonized uh, uh, renaming of it. The original name is called the Hajar Rashid, and it's actually from a town called Rashid in Egypt, in northern Egypt, close to Alexandria. Um, they have. Um, for some reason, they've renamed that town Rosetta. So some people will call it, like the locals call it Rosetta, but then when you, so the locals call it Rashid, but when, when you look on the map, it's called Rosetta, but most people know the place as Rashid. And um, so if you search Return of Rashid, please sign the petition because that's, we're trying to like gain a lot more awareness on that. So we did the digital heist, the same thing. We went to the British Museum. And when we go, we don't just go like, no, we don't just like walk in. We go dressed like we're trying to rob the place. We go with, with like masks, dressed in all black, gloves, you know, <laughs> covered covered up, looking like we're going to rob the place. And that that as well it almost has like a performative aspect to it as well. Um, because obviously I fully acknowledge the like looking at two, <laughs> two guys going into a space dressed the way we are is going to turn heads and it's going to have like a reaction. But the, the, I guess the, the funny thing about it is that it's legal, right? There's nothing illegal about dressing, in, the, in at least in the UK anyway, there's nothing illegal about dressing, wearing a mask. I mean, for, for example, we were wearing masks for like a whole year during COVID. So there's nothing illegal about wearing a mask and there's nothing illegal about dressing in all black. It's just the, <laughs> it's just what it represents and something. But what we're doing is actually just using that to um, like take the, the digital scans. Um, so then once we did that, we got the scans and then I traveled with Monica back to Egypt, to the town of um, Rashid. Now there was, it, it was, it was interesting to see like the juxtaposition between that town where the Rosetta Stone originally comes from and the British Museum. You go to the British Museum and I even remember uh, um, like my friend that was with me, it's just like, like, wow, like, oh my God, like it's, you know, it's a beautiful structure, everything. When you leave, they've got, they've got all the, they've got their, um, their, their shop where they sell like the Rosetta Stone books. They got the Rosetta Stone tote bag. They've got the Rosetta Stone. They even had a Rosetta Stone nail file. <laughs> they, 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 like anything that they could put that Rosetta Stone on, they've put, and they're, and they're selling it. Like, um, like they've pretty much, you know, capitalized on the fact of, of having it. They're making a lot of money out of it, a lot of visitors there. Now you juxtapose that against when I was in um, the Citadel in Rashid, and it was a very, like, I guess your everyday, your everyday uh, Egyptian life. The place wasn't a highbrow place at all, by far. Um, you know, the local people there. You would see that. You would see the difference. There's not much tourism compared to other places in Egypt, and you could just see the difference it would have made to that place if the Rosetta Stone was in that town. You know, and people would go there and be able to. Um, able to like spend their money and kind of, you know, bring more economy to that place. Then you think about that, the average Egyptian there, if that average Egyptian wanted to go to the, go to the UK, what would it mean for them? They would have to buy a flight, which, you know, they're now paying that in pounds, not Egyptian pounds, in UK pounds, which is very expensive. They have to get a visa, which 
once they pay for that visa, it may or may not be denied. In fact, Monica, Monica Hanna from, from Egypt, we were supposed to do this project in November, but her, her, her Egyptian, her visa to the UK was denied uh, twice. So it took her like six months before she could actually come to the UK to do this project with us. Um, so you can just see how difficult, and she's a professor, right? And she was invited by Oxford to speak. So you can imagine like if someone yeah. like that, if someone like that finds it difficult to come to the UK, imagine like the everyday um, Egyptian who, who, you know, who wants to come. So there's all these, there's all these things that are, that are happening that you see with within like the um, uh, the history of like Egypt and how they're even storing uh, the history, even to the way you even think about the um, language that's used to describe history. A lot of times you'll see like in English. Right, where actually the local language or most locals they speak like Arabic or Egyptian Arabic, right? But when you see a lot of these, it's it, the the signs and things that you see in Egypt. The the you know the the bigger signs would be in English and like maybe a small piece in Arabic. It's like what what is that telling them? What is that telling them about their own history? Is that this has more power over your you know or more significance over your history than than you do? So anyway, when we got to the the citadel, um, you you know we went there. We went to the exact spot where the Rosetta Stone, and they had like a fake kind of remade uh, Rosetta Stone. Like it's a lot smaller and there, and it was just like explaining you know um, where it originally was from. And I used um, a technology called location-based lenses from Snap. Um, to place so with using using Snapchat, you can actually place a, a digital asset in a particular location and use like any kind of marker within that location to initiate it. So we basically dropped the uh, Rosetta Stone digitally back in its place. And um, for me, that's been one of the most like. Uh, significant things that we that we've done because it, it tells that story from from taking to returning. And then, how does the NFT aspect work of that one? So you minted it as an NFT, and then I know you've sold some of them out there. But it, it reminded me when I was reading about this of um, if you're familiar with the artist Theaster Gates in Chicago, who is sort of uh, spends the time doing urban revitalization, but then also in the art world. And so Stony Island Arts Bank, he like took the marble out of the bathrooms and minted stock certificates and sold mm -hmm. that to pay for the restoration. I can imagine how. This becomes a new form of like giving to do kind of urban projects. So yeah, I mean, who are the who are the buyers of the NFTs of your bronzes and your Rosetta Stone, and 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 how have you sort of yeah how, how are you deploying those funds then? I guess for future projects. So the 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 one of the main reasons that we that we wanted to utilize the the technology of um, the NFT is that with <clears throat> with the tokenization of like the assets, we're able to. You know, you're able to add different things in inside of that asset. And one of the things that we added added in was a, a percentage of the funds goes in the percentage of the funds from every sale goes into a Luti fund, which we then use to give out grants to artists based in on the continent of Africa. So that's one of the main reasons. And also because with I think with a lot of charities that um, I've previously seen anyway, there hasn't been that level of transparency. But with Web3, the main, the main like aspect of Web3 is transparency. 
and you being able to see every single transaction that's gone in and out. Um, and we have like a Discord channel where we try to, you know, just display everything, you know, um, clearly and so that everyone can see like, you know, what's been sold, where the money's gone, where every transaction has gone. Very interesting. Um, yeah, no, I mean, to your contrast, the British Museum, when I was there a year ago, uh, I was pointing out to my, my son uh, all the Sackler wings and like, thinking about traditionally how that gets financed and paid for by large philanthropies as a way of, of covering up their various crimes. Um, so the idea of taking that having transparent investment, I think is really amazing. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the obvious question is sort of, you know, what's next in terms of both, you know, do you have a list of other sort of repatriation targets? Are you working with various organizations and thinking about repatriation to select sites or how do you imagine the project evolving? So for me, I was even thinking about this this morning. I don't want, want to take on like another project until we finished with the projects that we have now. So the main thing that we want to finish up is on that, the Rosetta Stone and the, the repatriation of Rashid. So we need 10,000 signatures, um, which I think we're on around like 6,000 now. Um, and that will be like the first like milestone, right? And then for us to basically be able to get some kind of like sponsorship and attract more <coughs> um, so we can like help with like the project and like build the project, get more eyes on this project and essentially get this to a point where the Egyptian government will take this on, right? Because um, right now I'm really so interested in um, the whole like repatriation like aspect of things. Um, and also for the for the UK government to talk about this in in Parliament. So once we have those two things and start like start kicking off that conversation, um, I'd say at least our part in this is done, um, and the rest of it will go on to like those kind of officials that deal with with that process of or physical repatriation, if that is even even going to be um, a possibility. But the digital repatriation is done. So <laughs> for that, where we're, we're happy and we can like build more on, um, you know, there's so much more you can do with the digital than you can do with the, the physical as well. So we can even build more with that. Yeah, interesting. I, I mean, I'm curious, like in terms of, um, I mean, do you imagine digital museums or, or I, what, what do you think is sort of the, the urban future of this? And like, what would be your advice for policymakers or for public officials, which is ironic given that you're, you know, doing digital heists. So it's sort of ironic asking advice, but, but yeah, what, what do you think, uh, you know, yeah, what are your conversations like with, with leaders in Egypt and elsewhere in terms of how they should think about this to draw attention and, and basically increase pressure and shame on um, institutions like the British Museum? Well, I've, I think the, the museum is going, is not going anywhere, right? We, we can't, I, don't, I think it's like, it's um, unlikely that we're gonna have a, a situation where the, you know, we will bring down the museum and no one else is using museums anymore. But what what we want is to bring like an alternative. Let's bring an alternative perspective to this because without without alternative perspectives, then you never get to question anything. You just think that oh well, this is the way things have always been, and that's the way they will always be. But actually, it's that it's not right. You know, that's not necessarily true, right? There's other there's other ways of us memorizing our history. There's other ways of us showing our history. It doesn't have to live within the context of a museum, right? So there's other ways. And, if, and even like uh, with this project that we have at, at the Benale, we wanted to call it a 
digital museum but i was just like no it's not a, like even to use the word museum is like no let's let's use the word sayama which basically in the edo language means to commemorate because during that time um those artifacts that we currently have in the british museum today were used for commemoration they were used for celebration right and that was the way that the people of that time were able to show their history was through celebration so it's it, it's like another another way that you can actually show your history through things like what we have now is like a digital commemoration so if you remember when you're in the space that we have like music you know with, with the sound which is supposed to Kind of represent the talking drum um and there's also like a fun aspect to it with like the ar you know allowing people to like learn in a way that's a bit more interactive than having these uh what i like to call the cold glass box and four white walls which we usually see um so it's just to add that different perspective to to the the people who are in charge for them to also like realize and even if they don't we're on our own path to to show other people. Yeah. Well, one one final question. I, I, my favorite of the Biennale, and for those who are watching this who haven't seen it, obviously there was. I think the Biennale exhibit has sort of two of the Benin bronzes in it, which are QR code mapped, which I pulled up a snap. But the one that really grabbed me was the Benin wall, which I was vaguely familiar with, did not understand the true monumentality of what it was, but the fact that it was a milk crate stacked in a corner and you scan it and it says, I think it was the text, like this is approximately half the height of the Benin wall, but then the whole wall falls away in the gallery space. And now I'm looking onto a vista where there is the Benin wall slightly in the distance to understand some of the scale. And yeah, I'm curious your thoughts on this too, like this notion of like being able to open up entire landscapes and vistas beyond the four walls of the, of the white cube. I thought was really fascinating. Yeah, the, so one of the concepts that we were, were really speaking about was like, it's a, it was an architectural Bernale, right? So we we're thinking about space, but imagine having like a space within a space, right? Like a digital space within the physical space. So that's what I really believe. Like a lot of people talk about, you know, the metaverse and um, having to put on the, the head, the head uh, VR headsets and things like that. But I don't really believe that that's going to take over as much as AR will take over because we already exist within this world. We already we already live within a space. So why don't we just like augment the world that we already have? And the way that I learn mostly, or not not so much the way that I learn, but the things that I um, hold in my memories most are things that I've like physically interacted with right they're the memories that i hold the most so when we were thinking about using like ar and how we were like showing the height of the wall it was like how can we like physically show people like this was the height of the wall rather than it being maybe like a a small model of it or a, a picture let's actually take people into that world and show you so that's why we had like the the stack crates and to show you that look at at the time when um this the, the Benin Kingdom like existed, it was a huge structure. I think it was one, I think maybe the second biggest to the Great Wall of China, it was huge. So we wanted to like, give you that, you know, give you that aspect of how big it actually was. Um, and yeah, being able to like input memories into people via like a physical space, I think that's one of the best ways of learning, you know, it's a new way of like people learning like phys physically. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Chief.
That's how we do it. Yeah. So Dan, my obvious question for you is what should be next on Ludi's hit list? Like what other artifacts should we get in there? I mean, we you know, and yeah, what, what would, and what would you pay for an NFT of? Like, what would you like to be the digital owner of? Wow. I mean, the, uh, I guess the Elgin Marbles is the first thing that comes to I mind. I would say, if you're going to keep going through the British Museum, that has to be at the top of the list. I'm surprised you didn't get there, but obviously perhaps Greece is a lower priority for him. And I, other thing, I'm curious, like what other vanished architecture as well? Because I think, as I said, my, you know, my favorite experience that really rendered well there was to actually sort of you know, recreate the Benin wall, like a wall in the Biennale falling away and looking at, you know, a, a representation of the Benin wall. So I'm trying to imagine, like, it'd be cool to, like, do versions of this one of, you know, destroyed buildings and vanished artifacts as well. I don't know, the seven wonders of the ancient world or, I don't know, lots of, lots of like, educational uses in that regard, too, of, like, you know, opening up that portal, so. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, um, they actually were able to locate a number of years ago now with some of the, at great expense, I'm sure, uh, as you as you alluded to in the introduction, uh, the some of the jungle cities of uh, Central America were found using lidar from aircraft, and uh, I could wonder about how many more things we could uncover or rip, uh, reproduce. Um, you know, with this technology. Well, this is something that's going to come into play here. I, you know, one of the things tying it back to the, the metaverse metropolis uh, at Cornell Tech is, is, you know, I was speaking to uh, uh, Bilawal Sidhu. He was a former Google senior product manager in like the mapping arm. Uh, and Google has come out with their own, you know, they've got their own visual positioning system, their own virtual GPS of the world, where they unveiled a tool in May. And I love this, like they announced 100 things at Google I.O. and like 99 of them were about AI. But maybe the most significant was the one about this geospatial creator, which allows you to drop virtual objects at coordinates anywhere in the world. And as Bill Wall pointed out, with our LiDAR stuff, you can now do this to anything. You can create 3D representations of any object, public infrastructure, make a copy of it, and start dropping it in VPS coordinates all around the world. And what are cities going to do then? We're like, you know, people are like, you know, there's IP issues and there's all sorts of stuff there. Um, but like, yeah, we're, we're about to enter a world that, you know, I could keep going about some of this as well in terms of like, I met my first AI, uh, AI person, a talking owl named Wool who exists in AR. We could have a whole separate episode about augmented world expo where I went to after the Biennale. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen to this where, you know, we're going to walk through a world where you can create digital scans of almost anything and start dropping it into an augmented world metaverse pretty quickly. So lots for architects to do here as we, you know, repopulate the world. So there you go. One wonders if we won't have to adopt a 3D or 4D aspect of Unfrozen uh, in order to stay up with it. Oh, you say that, Dan. We can get a, we can get a Metaverse live stream going anytime. So, you know, let's not threaten our viewers with a good time. <laughs> I have to start thinking of what my avatar is going to be. Yeah, exactly. And start doing that now. We, I forget the Ready, Ready Player Me. We can go in there. There's is a service for that one to quickly whip up your avatar. So maybe next episode. Yeah, Talking Owl's already taken, so I'll have to have a think. There you go. Well, all right, well, that's enough for us this time around, listeners, with, with our next. We've got one more Biennale episode at least coming up. I would say I'm excited to get back to the National Pavilions, which we teased for you once upon a time and now return to. We'll have interviews next time around with uh, two of the curators of the Canadian Pavilion, uh, not for sale, which is their uh, housing polemic, and then one of the curators of the Latvian Pavilion, uh, which is you know its amazing parody using AI of you know of Biennale's past and uh, ideas for consumption. So excited to bring that one back next episode. All right, we'll see you next time. 